Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 72, Papillon by Henri Charrier. After five years as an international bestseller, it comes to the screen. Unquestionably, the greatest adventure of escape ever filmed. Steve McQueen, Dustin Hoffman, Papillon. You keep me alive until we land in Guyana, and I don't want to write any escape you care to arrange. Done. Welcome to the penal colonnade of French Guiana. Whose prisoners you are. Get moving! And from which there is no escape. How much will it cost? 3,000 in advance, which you pay to me, and I pay to Pascal, who provides everything. You double-cross me, I'll kill you. How much you charge to send this one as far as Panama? Guard, come here a minute. Steve McQueen, Dustin Hoffman. Two men with nothing in common but a will to live. And a place to die. It's up to you. You are just as much dead as you are alive. Make no pretense at rehabilitation here. We're not priests, we're processors. A meat packer processes live animals into edible ones. We process dangerous men into harmless ones. This we accomplished by breaking you. What do you think? Did he make it or didn't he? Oh, I'd say his chances are very poor, wouldn't you? Is that all you've got to say? What do you expect me to say? That man risked his life to save mine. The ordeals of prison. I want that name and I want it now. Then you'll die. The dreams of freedom. The dangers of escape. Steve McQueen, Dustin Hoffman, Papillon.
the greatest adventure of escape ever filmed. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we've both read and determine whether it is worthy of its positive or negative reputation and whether it's required reading. So I am here beginning this prison break. And I needed a cohort because it's no fun to jump off a cliff and land on a sack of coconuts without someone. So jumping off that cliff and landing on a sack of coconuts with me is Tom Paneris. Bonjour. <laughs> Ça va? Ça va bien. <laughs> Et tu? Ah, well... That's about as far as I go. Welcome. I mean, Two years of French in high school yeah. and then, then a few semesters in college. How many semesters? Yeah. Uh, two semesters in college. Oh, okay. And then four years between junior high and high gotcha. school. So. Yeah. yeah. Mon petit fromage. I remember that funny line from The West Wing because mm. he kept saying that he knew French. And then his wife said, that you just called me my little cheese. Your little cheese. And then Phoebe, <laughs> I think, on Friends used to say, je m'appelle sometimes. Yes. So, yeah. So Nestle too less. Yeah. <laughs> Real things here and there, but luckily this this novel had been translated or memoir had been translated, so we're working out. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, how how is everything? We are in fall now. We're in fall. Have we are. you been doing some fall checklist things? Have you had a pumpkin spice latte? Have you been taking pictures of leaves? Have you gone gourd hunting? Have you gone to an apple orchard? How successful are you? I don't like pumpkin spice lattes. Okay. Because I don't like licorice y flavoring, so I pass on those. Okay. I have tickets to go both apple picking and gourd hunting and probably eat apple cider donuts and drink hot apple cider in about a week and a half from now. So that's that the twenty third. Um I have taken pictures of leaves. In fact, I just posted some to my Insta. And um, I went hiking up in Shenandoah National Park last weekend with my sister, my brother-in-law, my wife, and my kid. So that was fun. So I'm, I'm getting I've, – I've been making a concerted effort when I get home because I get home at about 4.15, 4.30 every day. Um, I have been making a concerted effort if it is not raining to go for a walk just because it's – I need the exercise. But mm -hmm. more I need to just be able to kind of – clear my head and enjoy the outside so that's been very nice so i've been taking in all the fall that's starting to to kind of come around as, as i go each day and listen to my uh, scary stories podcast because oh, it's october there you go so yeah it's called ghosts in the burbs it's very very good i, I highly recommend it interesting Yes, well, I do like the pumpkin spice latte. I haven't gone to an orchard 
Well, I guess that's not true. When I visited Harry, we kind of went to an orchard. So I found gourds, but they didn't have any apples. Ooh. And I feel like Carter's Mountain, which is the place I assume that you're going next week. Yes. Is, yeah, we got I tickets. think it's a racket now because they're getting you to pay for these tickets and then for parking oh, yeah, well, and all this we, instead of just paying for, to pick some apples. Yeah, but it's uh, – you know what? I, I, I will pay for it if it guarantees me a spot and we go there as early as possible. So. Okay. I don't mind it. I see. So you so. are defending capitalism. Well, I'm defending, I don't know, my right to be able to get there <laughs> and enjoy my, you know, reserve my spot and enjoy my time. So, yeah. And it so, is, so. yes, it is starting to get beautiful out there. And just the crisp temperatures, mm-hmm. the drop in the temperatures. I was so excited about just because of how intense the summer seemed to be and it was uh, all the rain. So it's just very nice to have a chill in the air. The lack of humidity. Yes. You know, that alone. Yeah, we were up on, so Saturday, we went up to Skyline Drive at around 9 in the morning, 9.30, and it was like 40 degrees up there, and it was wonderful for me. I mean, (laughs) my wife was like, (laughs) my my wife did really well, but on the way back up the the hill toward the, toward the, uh, toward the visitor center, she was, she was, uh, um, her asthma started to kick in a little bit and she was just like, you know, we, we took it slow, but I was starting, you know, I was starting to flag a little bit too. But the fact that it was just not humid and oppressive and you could just enjoy the, the air and everything was, it was so nice. Yeah, for sure. We should have done Walden or something. <laughs> oh yeah, this we is, could have. This is, not, this is not the intro to a conversation about a book about a prison break. Yeah, but in the tropics. Yes, uh, Pappy did have. He was placed in areas that were very hot and had high humidity. Yeah, yeah. So at least we can connect it that way. I'm trying to think if there were moments that it was very cold. I'm sure there were. If I try to recount, but yes, we are talking about a big old prison bake break for 500 pages. So I'm the one, of course, who chose this, and audiences, listeners, I think, will be a little upset if only because they only have an episode to try to read it, though, you know, there's always grace with that since it's recorded. But I did Mm -hmm. warn Tom several episodes in advance because I knew that it was pretty long. But, Tom, what is your history with Papillon? This is my first time reading the book. I own a copy of the Dustin Hoffman, Steve McQueen film. I have never watched it. Uh, my, I got a, my dad gave me a Steve McQueen movie box set for Christmas one year because I think he saw it at Costco and thought I might like it. Um, so that's in their box set, but I haven't, I still have to watch it. Um, so I knew of the existence of the book. I really didn't know what it was about. Yeah. So this is, I was kind of coming in a little bit, a uh, little bit blind here. Okay. Yeah. I saw because I, find charlie hunnam to be a very beautiful man i went to go see him play Papillon a little while ago i think it was 20 2018 and i really enjoyed it and wanted to know a bit more about it and even though at the time i had I was still going with my Roar Gilmore's reading list. I thought I should look for this. And so whenever I went to a used bookstore, I tried to find it, and I really couldn't. It was one of those things, along with Musashi, that I still can't find. And I had gone to New York City, and I think this was like a trip I went by myself, and I wanted to go to the Strands Bookstore because I had heard such things, wonderful things about it. 
very large. And mm-hmm. so as I'm walking towards strands, I saw this man who had a little rolling Tupperware, I guess you would say, of books. And on the bottom, facing outward, is in fact Papillon, right outside of Strand's bookstore. So I was like, oh my gosh, there it is. And so I asked him if he was going to be there, and he said, yeah, I'll be here. And I went inside because I thought, well, I'll look around here. And I did get a couple things from Strand's, but no Papillon, no Musashi. And so I came back out, and I pointed to Musashi and said, or no, I pointed to Papillon, and I said I would like that. And so I was able to get it. I can't remember how much I paid. $2, $2 for this little guy. It was in nice condition, too. And it that so that was i guess pre pre covid most likely and hadn't read it cuz obviously it's pretty thick but when i was going to go to europe with my father this year it was going to be my book that i was going to take i kind of take one large book on each of these trips i took don quixote when i went to kenya i took east of eden when i went to um uh, or Vieto, Italy. And so I was going to take this. And in fact, I, I did finish it in those two weeks. It was, it was great. And then I actually, this weekend, because it had been so long since I had read it, I watched the, this 1973 version, the one that you're talking about, so that I could mm-hmm. kind of jog my memory as to what happened. So technically my first time reading it but it is yes it was a it was a long journey it was with me for a little bit and i'm happy i'm happy that it was with me for a while so i do have to talk about the provenance of the specific book that is in my hand right now oh okay so this was my first ever interlibrary loan this is something that you do very often oh my goodness and you paid three dollars for it no i didn't have to pay anything for it actually excuse me or did i pay two dollars no i might have paid two dollars i can't remember well, I wonder how you got off of paying money if if that's true. Maybe I did pay two dollars. I don't remember. I have to, if I paid two dollars, I paid cash, and so it was such a small amount of money, and it was also like a month and a half ago. So they got it for me. I've actually renewed it once because I needed it for today. It has come from the. It has come from Jerry Falwell Library Whoa. at Liberty University. Apparently, it was originally the property of Finch College in New York City, according to a, a sticker that's in the back inside. And right before the title page, there is a stamp, and it's it's not very. Um, they've they've obviously had this copy for a while in their library. It, it's kind of beat up. It's a hard cover, um, but it it was. There's two stamps. One from what was then called Liberty Baptist College. And then, uh, then there's another one from Liberty University, and it says, uh, to the reader, this book represents the wealth of knowledge in the world today. Liberty University includes this knowledge in order to standardize the work and validate the credits of the university. Use of this volume by Liberty University is not an endorsement of its contents. The position of the university on the fundamentals of the faith and the separated Christian life is well known. So, yeah. <laughs> It's got a a warning label from Liberty University on the inside of this copy of this book. Well, I guess it's good that somebody read it first, I guess, before playing the library. Yeah, so I'll be returning it tomorrow. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay, and they'll be – do you want to write your name in there? No. Okay, so that they can track you down and evangelize. Okay. 
Well, well, thank you. So you also had a personal journey with it. So I oh. will talk about the the context of the book, of course, and and the the history of the author. Though, as with other things that we've done, we're going to be talking a lot about him and this actual journey so i don't want to mm-hmm. reduplicate as much as possible so here we go and i got a lot of this from thought co and I'm trying to think if there was if there are any others i will i'll pull up and let you know where i got it okay so charrier was born at oh boy saint etienne de lude <laughs> de Ludares, ardèche in france he had two older sisters and his mother died when he was 10. So at 17, which was in 1923, he enlisted in the French Navy and served for two years. So I think there there is a question about that. Upon returning home to Paris, he immersed himself in the French criminal underworld and soon made a career for himself as a petty thief and safe cracker. By some accounts, he may have made money as a pimp as well. In 1932, a low-level gangster from Montmartre named Roland Legrand, some reports list his surname as La Petite, was killed and Charrier was arrested for his murder. And although Pappy maintained his innocence, he was nevertheless convicted of killing Legrand. He was sentenced to 10 years of hard labor in the St. Laurent du Maroni penal colony on French Guiana and was transported there from Cannes in 1933. The conditions of the penal colony, which is another question I'll ask, were brutal. And Pappy struck up a tenuous friendship with two of his fellow inmates, Jean Crucio and Andre Maturet. In November 1933, you know, whenever we do a Latin one, it's it's perfect. It's perfect, but yeah, any other language. In November 1933, the three men escaped from St. Laurent in a small open boat, and after sailing nearly 2,000 miles over the next five weeks, they were shipwrecked near a Colombian village. They were recaptured, but Charrier managed to slip away once more, evading his guards in the storm. In his semi-biographical novel, published later, Charrier, claimed that he made his way to the Gujira Peninsula in northern Colombia and then spent several months living with a local indigenous tribe in the jungle. Eventually, Pappy decided it was time to leave, but once he came out of the jungle, he was recaptured almost immediately and was sentenced to two years in solitary confinement. As I'm reading this, I'm beginning to come up with another question over the course of the next 11 years in which pappy was imprisoned he made numerous escape attempts it's believed that he tried as many as eight times to escape prison he later said that he was sent to devil's island a prison camp known both for being completely inescapable and for having a prisoner death rate of an astonishing 25 percent In 1944, Pappy made his final attempt, escaping on a raft and landing on the coast of Guyana. Imprisoned there for a year, he was ultimately released and granted citizenship, and eventually he made his way to Venezuela. Burton Lindheim of the New York Times wrote in 1973, quote, Charrier tried to escape seven times and succeeded on his eighth attempt, a paddle over a shark-filled sea on a raft of dried coconuts. He found refuge in Venezuela, worked as a gold digger, oil prospector, and pearl merchant, and did other odd jobs before settling down in Caracas, marrying, opening a restaurant, and becoming a prosperous Venezuelan citizen. 
1969, he published Papillon, which became hugely successful. The book's title comes from the tattoo that Charrier had on his chest. Papillon is the French word for butterfly. In 1970, the French government pardoned Charrier for Legrand's murder, and René Plevin, the French Minister of Justice, removed restrictions on Charrier's return to Paris to promote the book. Charrier died of throat cancer in 1973, the same year that a film adaptation of his story was released, and this film stars Steve McQueen as the title character and Dustin Hoffman as a forger named Louis Degas. A 2018 version features Rami Malek as Degas and Charlie Hunnam as Charrier. From Wikipedia... Uh, the book was an immediate sensation bestseller, achieving widespread fame and critical acclaim. Upon publication, it spent 21 weeks as number one bestseller in France, with more than 1.5 million copies sold in France alone. 239 editions of the book have since been published worldwide in 21 different languages. The book was first published in France by Robert Lafont in 1969 and first published in Great Britain by Rupert Hart Davis in 1970 with an English translation by Patrick O'Brien. Charrier also published a sequel to Papillon called Banco in 1973. Papillon has been described as, quote, the greatest adventure story of all time by, end quote, by Auguste Le Breton and, quote, a modern classic of courage and excitement, end quote, by Janet Flanner in The New Yorker. So there is some controversy here, which we're going back to ThoughtCo. So Georges Menagers, <laughs> The Four Truths of Papillon, and Gerard de Villiers' Butterfly Pinned both went into depth about inconsistencies in Charrier's tale. For instance, Charrier claimed he rescued a guard's daughter from a shark attack, but the child was in fact saved by another inmate who lost both of his legs and died as a result of the incident. He also claimed that he was imprisoned on Devil's Island, but French penal colony records do not indicate that Charrier was ever sent to this particular prison. In 2005, Charles Brunier, was, who was 104 years old, said that it was his story that Charrier told in Papillon. Brunier, who was imprisoned at the same penal colony as Charrier during the same period, told a French newspaper that he inspired Charrier to write the book. Brunier even had a tattoo of a butterfly. Okay, so I do, this is, this is unique here for required reading, but I have a question here before I go on to the plot synopsis. And it's about this controversy. Now, I think about Two Cups of Tea by Greg Mortensen. I don't know if you remember that particular controversy. Yeah, I think of a million little pieces um, by uh, whatever that guy's name was. By somebody. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember this huge, it was very popular. Everyone was loving this guy. This guy came out on Oprah. I remember reading it with this book club that I had. And then it comes out, it was all sham. And... I wonder if, now that's, I just think about it. I'm not comparing this it's like one-to-one, -one, but depending on, because I, I, I don't think we're ever going to know now about Papillon. If mm. I'm sure that Brunier, who was 104 in 2005, is no longer with us. And yeah. it would be like a he said, he said situation anyways. But does this, I don't know, deflate is the word that's coming to my mind, but it seems like a weird way to use it in a sentence. Oh, let's say reduce. Does this reduce the work if there is controversy involved? Or does it sort of change in your mind how to engage with the work that now that, oh, he may not have written it, but can we still treat it as a potential story? Or does it just kind of throw everything in a way? That you, I don't know, you can't, you can't respect it as much anymore if this controversy is true or that there's a controversy in, in general? 
I don't think it, I don't lose any real respect for him in, in that regard. I mean, it's still uh, one of the things that it really does put to light is the really horrific condition of the French penal system in, in their colonies at the time. So fiction or not, it's, it's definitely putting some light on that and fiction or not, it's, it's clearly taken from some true stories of some sort. It's tough because I think of like, a million little pieces which the fiction in that was so so like made up and exploitative that it was kind of disgusting you know what what you know what he ended up doing i don't get the same vibe from this it still makes for a really good story or maybe it's because i have so much time between that and some of the other controversies about memoirs that are more contemporary that, you know, I was reading it as almost like an embellished account of what this guy went through. And the idea that he might have taken bits and pieces from other people's stories and incorporated into his own is, I don't think it's entirely ethical, but at the same time, I can kind of see where he where he gets it in order to tell a story. So I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of indifferent to it. Um, I, I was, I was able to just read the book and then take it in for what it was right in front of me. Yeah. And I think it also comes down to motivation because mm -hmm. I feel, I don't know what, he, uh, Henri thought that he could get out of it. If, if it was somebody else's story. Yeah. Except for, you know, writing it down. Because I don't know that he ever knew it was going to get published. I don't know that he ever knew it would reach wide success like that or the movies or everything. Because that, that was just a different time period. I think that with, what is it? A Million Little Pieces? Million Little Pieces. I've, I'll have to look that up. I have not heard of this. And then with the other one, I just feel like you you knew what you were doing there with, with two cups of tea. <laughs> I... I don't know why you did it, but I, I think that there there is more of an intent there. But yes, this is oh man, it's so detailed, which is crazy to think that he was able to because they're all notebooks. Like he just sat down and started writing all of this, and and we've had questions in the past, of course, with how much can we trust a memoirist, anyways? Mm -hmm. And you know there are things that seem very far fetched here, but it's it's also so detailed that you wonder, well, this is kind of crazy. I, you know, it'd be sad if it, if it was someone else's story, mainly because uh, that person should be named and get credit for it. But it, even if it is or isn't, uh, I think I agree with you that, that it is one heck of a story that we're reading there. So I think it just changes maybe how we engage with it slightly. But I think my respect doesn't necessarily go down for the work. You know, I think it's more about the person, but we can't yeah. really know. Now it's just all guessing, I think. Yeah, I think you gotta, I think you're right. So, okay. Well, I'll do the plot synopsis. It could have been crazy. I was actually looking for a very detailed one, kind of like wild. That was very good, but there weren't any, which was very, well, there was one, but I was gonna have to pay. It was from Book Rags, and they were oh, asking geez. $20 of me, and I thought, yeah. It's not worth it. So we'll just... We don't have the budget for that. We do not have the budget for that, no. And then you might ask yourself, Stella, why didn't you write your own? And to that I say, it has been since the end of June <laughs> since I read this. So already, you know, I was kind of like trying to pull out pieces. So thank you, Wikipedia. Okay, here we yeah. go. The book 
is an account of a 14-year period in Papillon's life, October 26, 1931 to October 18, 1945, beginning when he was wrongly convicted of murder in France and sentenced to a life of hard labor at the Bogne de Cayenne, the penal colony of Cayenne in French Guiana, known as Devil's Island. He eventually escaped from the colony and settled in Venezuela, where he lived and prospered. After a brief stay at a prison in Cain, Papillon was put aboard a vessel bound for South America, where he learned about the brutal life that prisoners endured at the prison colony. Violence and murders were common among the convicts. Men were attacked for many reasons, including money, which most kept in a charger, which I've got a question about this, a hollow metal cylinder concealed in the rectum, also known as, oh, interesting, plan de vasion. De, de, de vege, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> or escape suppository. Papillon befriended Louis Degas, a former banker convicted of counterfeiting. He agreed to protect Degas from attackers trying to get his charger. I think in current times, those are called prison wallets, but I could be wrong. Upon arriving at the penal colony, Papillon claimed to be ill and was sent to the infirmary. There he collaborated with two men, Lucio and André Maturet, to escape from the prison. They planned to use a sailboat acquired with the help of the associated leper colony at Pigeon Island in uh, St. Lucia. The Moroni River carried them to the Atlantic Ocean, and they sailed to the northwest, reaching Trinidad. In Trinidad, the trio were joined by three other escapees. They were aided by a British family, the Dutch Bishop of Curacao, and several others. Nearing the Colombian coastline, the escapees were sighted. The wind died, and they were captured and imprisoned again. In Colombian prison, Pappy joined with another prisoner to escape. Some distance from the prison, the two went their separate ways. Pappy entered the... Guajira Peninsula, a region dominated by the Amerindians. He was assimilated into a coastal village whose specialty was pearl diving. There he married two teenage sisters and impregnated both. After spending several months in relative paradise, Pappy decided to seek vengeance against those who had wronged him. Soon after leaving the village, Pappy was captured and imprisoned at Santa Marta, then transferred to Barranquilla. There he was reunited with Clusio and Maturette. Papillon made numerous escape attempts from this prison, all of which failed. He was eventually extradited to French Guiana. As a punishment, Papi was sentenced to two years of solitary confinement on Ile Saint-Joseph, an island in the Ile du Salut, or Salut group, 11 kilometers or 7 miles from the French Guiana coast. Clusio and Maturette were given the same sentence. Upon his release, oh, I forgot, Up, upon his Release Papillon was transferred to Royal Island, also an island in the Ile du Salut group. An escape attempt was foiled by an informant who Papi stabbed to death. Papi had to endure another 19 months of solitary confinement. His original sentence of eight years was reduced after Papi risked his life to save a girl caught in shark-infested waters. I believe that, unfortunately, one of his friends didn't make it out of the solitary confinement or he like he just came out and then he passed away it was very sad but continue on after french guiana officials decided to support the pro-nazi vichy regime the penalty for escape attempts was death or capital punishment pappy decided to feign insanity in order to be sent to the asylum on royal island insane prisoners could not be sentenced to death for any reason and the asylum was not as heavily guarded as devil's island he collaborated on another escape attempt but 
had failed. The other prisoner drowned when their boat was destroyed against rocks, and Pappy nearly died as well. Pappy returned to the regular prison population on Royal Island after being quote-unquote cured of his mental illness. He has to be transferred to Devil's Island, the smaller and considered the most inescapable island in the Ildu de Salute group. Pappy studied the waters and discovered possibilities at a rocky inlet surrounded by a high cliff. He noticed that every seventh wave was large enough to carry a floating object far enough out into the sea that it would drift toward the mainland. He experimented by throwing sacks of coconuts into the inlet. He found another prisoner to accompany him, a pirate named Sylvain. He had sailed in Southeast Asia where he was known to raid ships, killing everyone aboard for their money and goods. The two men jumped into the inlet using sacks of coconuts for flotation. The seventh wave carried them out into the ocean. After days of drifting under the relentless sun, surviving on coconut pulp, they made landfall at the mainland. Sylvain sank in quicksand, which was a horrifying, horrifying scene, after having abandoned his coconut sack. On the mainland, Papillon encountered Queequeg, who had built a hut on an island. The hut was set on solid ground surrounded by quicksand. Queequeg depended on a pig to find the safe route over the quicksand. The men and the pig made their way to Georgetown, British Guiana by boat. Pappy decided to continue to the northwest in the company of five other escapees. Reaching Venezuela, the men were captured and imprisoned at mobile detention camps in the vicinity of El Dorado, a small mining town near the Gran Sabana region. Surviving harsh conditions there and finding diamonds, Pappy was eventually released, and he gained Venezuelan citizenship and celebrity status a few years later. He also married and had a daughter. I can't remember if I mentioned that in the biography. I believe you did, yeah. Oh, which I didn't say in the other biography that he was married before he was in prison. So you only briefly see her. It's almost like a weird, I was going to say Penelope, but that might not be quite right. There's somebody that no. like was married, they went off, and then they died. But that was really not the the main, the main love. Oh, you know, I, w I could <laughs> say it's like Aeneas who had crayusa for a little bit and she died and then mm -hmm. said there's someone greater that's you know that you're meant for so similar to aeneas okay tom so the question i always bite my nails for did you enjoy <laughs> you know i when i was reading the book i did find it and i i didn't enjoy it but i will admit that this was a bit of a chore to read a bit of a chore um, but yeah, I mean, maybe it was just because of, of when I was reading it. So I'm trying to squeeze it in between, you know, work and, and everything else. Um, so I'm kind of stealing, uh, you know, minutes and, and reading on my lunch break. So it took me it took me a while to get through this book. Um, there were days where I was like, ah, you know, so so it did become a little bit of a chore to read. But while I was reading it, I did find it enjoyable, especially uh, when you get to the more action parts and. I was fascinated by his patience with like an ability to be patient as, as eager as he was to escape, to stick to his plan of like knowing how long he had and, and, and committing himself to like, if I'm not going to leave, like, cause there's time and time again where he meets like with the warden of the prison or something, or he's put on, he's put on a new area and he finds the person in charge and, they tell him, you know, if you're, I know you're going to try to escape. Could you wait nine months? Because that's when I leave. And he's like, I'll go ahead and wait nine months. And he sticks to that promise. And like, so his ability to do things like that, 
Um, that was kind of fascinating to me. I was like, this is really, really interesting. But yeah, so, so overall, I, I did find it enjoyable. Now, I have, I think, on the whole, been the one to ask you to read larger books. Mm. And I do try not to make it so there's like multiple a season, if we're calling our mm-hmm. show filled with seasons. But, you know, there is Jane Eyre, yeah. Don Quixote, Vanity Fair... But you did do Les Mis, and I'm trying to think if there was anything else. So with some of those, how does it rank? Was it as terrific, <laughs> terrific as Vanity Fair or Jane Eyre? No. Okay. No. Um, Vanity Fair, I think out of all of those longer books, I think Vanity Fair was the biggest chore. Okay. Don Quixote, I enjoyed, but that was... Portions of that were kind of like homework, maybe because I was trying to make sure that I understand, understood everything that was going on. Because it's just the how old it is and the style it was written and mm-hmm. stuff. I just was, yeah. So, but no, I think out of all of them, like out of all these really, really long books about me, Fair was probably the one I liked the least. Okay. And it did feel like you know, after a while, I was like, do I really have to keep reading this? So. Unfortunately. Well, luckily. You know, you have you have a, a space of time where I won't ask you to do a long book for a while. Plus, I'm running out of which ones I would yes. make you do anyway, so that works out. I mm-hmm. loved this book. I, mm-hmm. when I started reading it, which was on my first flight, which was over to, I guess it was from Newark to Portugal, and I started reading, I thought, wow, there, there's something, there's something different about this. And the, the font, I don't know what your copy looks like, but, you know, I've got one of those mass market kind of trades, Panther, and it, it it's thick, and it's small typing. I mean, this is 1970, so reprinted twice, so it's mm-hmm. not a first edition or anything. But I'm thinking, oh gosh, what if this is going to be really really dull, but I was super engaged the entire time. I would say it's at least in my top 10 of best books I've ever read in my life, I think. Mm. And yeah, I mean, immediately as I was reading it and I'm, I'm thinking about the implications of what's going on. And I immediately thought like, Oh, we need to do this on or required reading. So I, yes, I very much enjoyed it. I'm interested to, to see what, what the audience has to say as well. Okay. Okay. Oh boy. Okay. So yeah, my questions were scattered, so I'll be hopping around figuring out Mm -hmm. (laughs) where we're going, but we'll, we'll start here. I think with this, with this first particular one, how does Papillon's and sometimes I call Papillon, sometimes I call him Pappy. Some of his friends call him Pappy. How does Papillon's being wrongly convicted of a crime factor into the way you view his character? I have to resist calling him Poppy because P A P I is what we call my um, father-in-law. My oh, father calls his grandfather Poppy because my father-in-law is Mexican American, so he's like, I want to be called Poppy, so P A P I. So I kept reading it as Poppy, <laughs> but I know that's not it. It's Pappy because it's Papillon. I it made him more sympathetic to me rather than if he actually was a mur- a real murderer. Um, I think that the circumstances under which somebody is sentenced for a crime in a book like this are really, really important because if he were a, you know, like I think of the laundry list of crimes that people can do and get in prison for and that you would not have you on their side. Like if he was a rapist or something, you know, and he's, these are my stories of my attempts to escape. I'm like, yeah, but you're serving time for rape. 
you know, like, I don't want you to escape, you know, like, so there's certain, there are certain things there. Um, he, he in the same vein as somebody like a Jean Valjean, which is another French sort of prisoner who eventually gets out, um, and then eventually gets discovered. Uh, you know, there's, he's not, Pappy's not especially as noble as Jean Valjean is, because like Jean Valjean's like the, the epitome of the mis, misimprisoned person, right? He stole the loaf of bread. You know, there's a lot of virtue wrapped up in the character. I don't think there's a lot of virtue wrapped up in Papillon. But I will say the fact that he is obviously being punished for something somebody else did. Was it he like he gets a judge who's just basically out for vengeance, like for somebody else having been murdered or something. And he decides that he's going to take it all out on, on, you know, on on our on our protagonist. That that's how he ends up in the um so he gets not only does he get um, uh, convicted, he gets sentenced to a much harsher sentence that he really should have gotten. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's implied that it's he's being he's having that revenge meted out for something somebody else did. So um, that also gave me a little bit of sympathy. And I, I think it helped me engage with the character because then you are rooting for him to get off of these islands and out of these prisons and stuff because he's not supposed to be there in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think the crime, I mean, murder, right? Murder is pretty bad. Yeah. And we can hope. I mean, we're taking his word for it, of course. But he does stick to it the entire time. And even if he had murdered someone, we know that there's something funny going on, something hinky, because of the amount of time that he's well it's life basically so he's going to die in there but i would say that what convinces me or makes me believe that he didn't kill whoever might have been a pimp is how he acts in the prison and of course you know he's writing about himself but he Mm -hmm. seems to act in a way that distinguishes himself in a positive way and so because of how he treats others, I I feel like that does give me hope. Yeah, I, I hope you do escape. <laughs> and the fact that the prison system seems to be the villain slash antagonist of this entire story. Yeah. And you want you want the the protagonist, even if he's not he might be an anti-hero if you want to consider him that. He certainly has flaws like every human being, but you want him to overcome and conquer the villain slash antagonist. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah and the, I yeah, yeah I think it's interesting. There's obviously a connection. I cut you. Did you want to say something? No, no, go ahead. Okay. I'll, I'll I, I was just thinking about some similarities with Count of Monte Cristo, and obviously that mm-hmm. is a, a fictionalized tale, but just someone that you... Yeah, I almost wish we could have seen who Papillon was a little bit more before he's imprisoned, because I think that he... Does he shows some negative qualities to his character, which again makes it I think more believable because you know just like Cheryl Schrade, if if you're trying to beef up your character, you're not going to be showing some of this stuff. So it'd be interesting to see a little bit more of of that time beforehand, and. Yeah, I'm not sure. I lost my thought of where I was going with Count mm-hmm. Monte Cristo. I guess just that he, it was it was even more tragic w- once you found out that he was wrongfully accused because you got a sense mm-hmm. of who he was beforehand. Whereas we just know that he's affiliated with the underworld and he's doing some not good stuff. So yeah. in the beginning, you might not be as behind him as you would be if you knew more about him. 
Yeah, the more a more modern connection would be uh, the Stephen King novella and then subsequent film um, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption because you have you know I mean, more people are probably familiar with the film than they are with the Stephen King's novella, but um, you know in the Shawshank Redemption you have a main character who's trying to who who, who takes years to make that prison break and he is, has been wrongfully convicted and wrongfully sentenced for a murder. And the enemy in this entire, in that entire story is the warden and the prison guards and the prison system, you know, which is that, that's what that made me think of it a little bit as well. Um, yeah, we, we did another prison book, but it was the green mile. We did. So, yeah. And we kind of, and we kind of did something similar that had a more of a tragic ending with one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You know, where, where the enemy is the system as well, you know, because it personified by Nurse Ratchet. Um, and unfortunately, McMurphy does not survive that, uh, that particular system. Yeah. With Count of Monte Cristo, which is probably would be a book that I would recommend that we would, we should do it sometime because I Hmm. also really love that. Uh, I wonder if there is such a genre as escape fiction or nonfiction. Is this, you know, works like that? Maybe if you want to put One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in it or mm-hmm. um, Stephen King's novella, could could you group those together? Or do you think we – no, that's, there's no such thing as that. I, you know, I would imagine it, it would be a subgenre. I mean, I, I my mind – the funny thing was it's like, so Steve McQueen is in the 1973 movie. Steve McQueen's also in, in The Great Escape, which is one of the, like, the, the uh, seminal prison break – prison movies you know um of all time you know that's that's a that's a bona fide classic of them escaping a nazi prison camp in world war ii him and like you know a bunch of other people so i think that the prison whether it's a prison piece or a prison break piece i think that is a legitimate fiction subgenre because people have written about their time in various prisons whether it be war camps concentration camps prisons, jails, you know, whatever it happens to be. Because you have things like, you know, I don't think there's any escapes in Orange is the New Black, but, you know, that was a particular memoir as well. So I think if you kind of, maybe maybe not the prison break genre, but maybe a prison subgenre would be be more appropriate. Yeah, I just read a YA novel about Japanese teens during the requisition, what were those called? Requisition is not the right word. Relocation camps? I don't think that was it. Relocation. Basically, oh, the, uh, the internment the, the, camps. Um, internment camps, yeah. yeah. I'm using yeah. the um, the nicer terms that they were using, but let's call them what they are. So, yeah, I, I think yeah. that there could be kind of like a maybe a prison genre and getting to. And wasn't there, when we were talking about banned and censored books, there was that one I remember that was challenged, I think, about a young man in the prison system. Or trying to avoid it, or something like that. So yeah, it could yes, be. Yes, yes. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the book, but I know the book you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Well, still, I think talking about Pappy's character, I wondered if you would consider him an honorable man, and I guess as you're answering that, the reasons why I ask is because there are several times that people in authority trust him, and his fellow convicts to a certain extent. Now, not to say that he doesn't get into some scuffles there, but his fellow convicts know who he is and trust him. And then there are some like Maturette that do 
I would say, distasteful things because they know it will help Pappy. Because Montrette had to distract one of the was it called a turnkey in order to be, and uh, this turnkey was kind of hitting on uh, Ma Tourette. And so, you know, he is kind of willing, you know, to do this if if only to help Pappy out. But what is it about him mm-hmm. that, that people trust him and help him, give him money frequently <laughs> without him, you know, killing them and, and cutting them open and pulling it out is was kind of like the, the key phrase there. And is he is he honorable? Is that where it all goes back to? I think he is overall an honorable person. I get the sense that he is not going to hurt somebody that doesn't either deserve it or doesn't get in his way. So he's not, he is not a killer in that sense. You know, if if he, he, he outwardly avoids conflict when he doesn't need to engage in the conflict, you know, like there's a prison riot at one point that he stays away from. There's a plan that a bunch of the prisoners in one of the prisons have to to escape or no, they to revolt, to revolt, not escape. And he's just like, you're, you're all stupid. I'm stupid. So he he's very, very smart. He's and I think he's honorable. I think he has a lot of respect for those around him, especially those in authority. I think those in authority recognize that. They also recognize his charisma and influence over the other prisoners, which is why I think they treat him well, because I think they understand that if they can get him on their side to a certain extent, then they will have less problems like he's it's to their advantage that they like, you know, give him money or they hook him up and stuff, because if they were to outright refuse him, he probably would probably be more difficult for them than he would in a normal circumstance. And like I was saying, like, you know, he, he comes up to a warden a couple of times and the warden's like, you know, I'm out of here in six months. Why don't you wait until then? He's like, okay. And he keeps his promise. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, I think he had, I think they have a lot of respect for them because they, he respects them or at least, or he respects their position of authority. I don't know if he expects them as respects them as a person, but he certainly respects their positions of authority and their influence and their ability to what influence they might have over his life. So, he does the thing where he gets put months out of this sort of gentleman's agreement. And I think that he, yeah, I think that he ends up being a good friend to so many of these people that they will commit pretty terrible crimes or acts in order to help him out. Yeah. So. Yes. Sometimes people do die. Um, he, tr- I think he, tr- he tries to keep the body count low for sure. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know if it's completely altruistic, but, you know, a, a big reason is because if it fails, you know, they're going to be in for even longer because of of murder and everything. So I think oh, yeah, gonna, <laughs> trying to keep his his hands clean for the most part. Yeah, I think I think he does have honor, especially because his word does mean something when he says something. He means it, whether that it's a positive thing or a negative thing, that like a threat, and people know that he means it. So I think they either stay away or they're they are willing to help him. I would say that he doesn't lie. I think there are a couple times that he did probably to the authorities have to lie about things or maybe kind of brush the truth a little bit with a white lie. But he protects people, you know, being in solitary. And getting 
I think it was Degas was sending him the the coconut and and some and then they found that and they demanded to know who it was and and he never they would have gotten him out a bit earlier or at least given him back his rations and he never betrayed him so which he he gets betrayed you know i love that word he gets betrayed a couple times in in big ways and um he never pays that forward to anybody which i I think is is good so you wouldn't expect i think you know a conflict uh he was a part of the underworld could he have honor i think anyone potentially can have honor um, and I, I think that, that Pappy certainly does. And, yeah, I think you're right about the the charisma. And it kind of reminds me of, quote, unquote, bad kids that you might have in class. That sometimes if you can just get that <laughs> bad kid on your side in class, everyone else will also be in line because they kind of look to them to see what to do. Like they're the yeah. the holder of the temperature, I think, in, in the room. And so if you're able to to do that so yeah if you get pappy on your side then other people may as well and i think also with these conditions because we can move on to these these prison conditions here you already are just fighting for survival so it's almost worthless to why would you also make it more difficult on yourself by fighting against other people yeah so a lot of it i think and even papillon when he well Henri, when he's writing it he does have some commentary on the prison system and just how bad it is and i i was just looking at you know reform or even just talking about it is so recent, really. Late 90s for Venezuela, 2003 for France, um, mm-hmm. now that the poor conditions are being recognized. Could we use this novel as a model for reform or a reason for it? And do you think that the prison experiences in in this work, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, I, I think that it's probably true that these conditions are really bad, are comparable to U.S. prison conditions and experiences. I would imagine, and maybe this is naive of me to say that the United States prison system is not as harsh in some of the conditions. But they do have solitary confinements. Yeah. Um, they do have work groups and things like that. So um, I think there's... I think the prison system in this country skirts the line of the, I think it's the eighth amendment that's cruel and unusual punishment, you know, the bans cruel and unusual punishment. There's a whole host of issues with our prison system that are not reflected in this book because of our specific circumstances in this country. You know, the rate at which we imprison African Americans, uh, especially African American men for at such a higher rate than white people and for such longer, the inequity of the of the sentences for the same crime that you know than than like maybe a white person etc cetera, etc cetera. um and then how that has feeded a systemic uh kind of plague over this thing the other thing is is that i don't know what the circumstances circumstances of the prison systems in venezuela and france are but the united states runs a for-profit prison system in a big way and that is a that is a huge motivator to keep a lot of these people you know, in the press because they're making money off of them. So I think that it could be definitely something we can look at. But I think that you run the risk of the naive assumption that if you read this, you're like, oh, thank God it's not like this here where 
probably is to a very close degree. Maybe not the solitary confinement where the where the water rises and we get, you know. Gosh, yeah. I think I texted you at one point and I said, I think Chuck Dixon read this when he wrote Bane in the Batman yeah. comics because the, the solitary confinement where the water is rising, they're grasping at the grid to get the air. I'm like, that's right out of the vengeance of Bane. So I'm like, he must have read or seen Papillon, yeah. probably seen the film. Um, or whatever, or yeah. yeah, yeah, in Santa Prisca. So we don't have that. Um, and honestly, like in 1973, I think around the time the film came out, um, in the early 1970s, there was the Attica prison upri- uprising in, in New York State because the conditions at Attica were, were comparable to this. So there has been some prison reform in the last 50 years, but I don't think it's the extent that it's needed. Yeah. I do wonder how people use literature works to call for reform. Mm. Um, and this is, we're going to say it's nonfiction, so I think that's certainly, there are so many calls calls for action. I recently read The New Jim Crow, which is all about, yeah, the prison system basically being <laughs> the new Jim Crow. And... Yeah. Yeah. I. Oh man. I mean, just the fact that it's so recent that people are being like, "Wow, maybe this is pretty terrible," is interesting. When you have something like this, and maybe just people's attention is not looking at at what Papillon had been through, and it's more about escaping. So they're like looking at the end point or his purpose, but not looking at what he and his friends are going through. But it's pretty horrific. And yeah, solitary confinement, which does still exist. And I, I don't know if there's a noise ban. Yeah, I guess we can use that. <laughs> there isn't. Yeah, there's a noise ban here. The rations are so bad. You've got creepy crawlies in with you as well as rats. So you could basically die of anything and everything. And insan- yeah, insanity, malnutrition, all of this stuff. And so I feel like that's still possible. I mean, maybe the U.S. has good meals going in there, but you've, yeah, you're not able to walk around in your mm-hmm. little square only a little bit and then not being able to talk to anyone. And you just wonder what, and, and I know that a lot of those, at least when I was watching Origin the, is the New Black, a lot of the reasons why people were put in solitary confinement was because of punishment and you just wonder, like, oh, my gosh, they're already being punished. What else What else can you do? You know, it's like a big old timeout. Yeah. But it just seems, what What else? Is there, a, is there another way? And I just feel like if you look at this, you can kind of see that the worse that it could get. So, yes, of course, let us not get that way. But also see what sort of psychological damage I think you're doing or putting the psychological stress you're putting on these prisoners. Yeah, so it would be interesting. I don't know. Ugh. I mean, COVID, I, I thought maybe we were starting to look at this a bit more because of the overcrowding. But then, you know, they're re- releasing these, uh, basically the white collar criminals, you know, people, other yeah. people aren't getting released. So I don't know how much actual reform is going in there. And like you said, yeah, there's an injustice going on anyways, because of the population that's going in isn't as equitable i don't know it's there's certainly no equity in regards to to prison but yeah yeah and it's not a and this people people get confused on what the issue is um especially if they're of a certain political persuasion 
the issue is not punishing somebody for something they did wrong. The issue is the degree of punishment of which a Latinx or, or black individual gets compared to a white individual, you know? Mm-hmm. So like if I'm caught, if I'm caught with, if I'm caught with a, with a, a certain amount of pot that's above the legal limit, the legal allowance to have it, or I'm in a state where that hasn't decriminalized marijuana yet and I'm white, I might get, a light sentence, a slap on the wrist or something like that. Whereas a black person who was caught with the same amount might get double what I get. Yeah. And that's the, that's what I'm talking about, about the equity in the system. So that is, if there's anything that like at the root of one of our problems, it's that it's the way, it's the way we discriminate through that system. And honestly, like nobody in France or nobody in the United States would have, would have known it was going on at these prisons this one in the book or some of the ones that we have because, and this is going to sound very cruel. I don't mean to come across as cruel, but they're prisoners and the general consensus about them is that they have been successfully removed from society. So the indifference to what they're going through is very, very real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That so you, yeah. a lot of people are like, well, oh yeah. Well, yeah. You see that they're a convict basically. And you're like, well, you know, you shouldn't have done what you did. So, it's, yeah. Yeah, they get what they deserve. That's the that's yeah. a lot of some people actually practice that. We and lose. You're just like, that's not a good way to do this. Yeah, yeah, we're losing, I guess, empathy for them potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I guess the way I was just thinking as you were speaking that I guess the way to begin reform with literature is education, basically. So if we're using this as education. Yeah. Then, or after they read, then hopefully that reader is educating themselves on their own country's prison system and then going from there. So I guess that would be the way to use this work. And hopefully that's how you do mm-hmm. maybe anything, you know, that you're not just taking something at face value, but doing some extra research on top of it. So be, we'll continue, I guess, with this solitary confinement. Uh, I consider them particularly ghastly, especially because I think. At one point, he had a year, and then, yeah, he upped it to 19, so there were some increases because of things that he did, I guess, that they didn't like. So he makes it out. Many people don't. I think, like I said, if I'm recalling it correctly, his friend, who also got locked up at the same time, made it out and then died outside. But what is it that um, Papillon has, do you think, that many of those who die in those conditions don't? Is it just random? Is it just fate? Or is there something else going on? Uh, he has this discipline that I can't even ex- explain it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, how he can endure that for 18, 19 months. Just to doing the same thing day in and day out. It's just somehow he has that ability to be patient in that moment. So, so yeah, it's 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 astounding yeah. to me. Especially especially when, like, he's he's in this this disgusting pit where the water rises up and he has to essentially swim and hold on, you know, every night or every tide or whatever. And there are, Oh, it's so gross. Cause there's all these bugs crawling all over him and yeah. like, you know, there's rats and stuff. So it is deplorable. The conditions that he's under in, in solitary confinement, the fact that he is just, you know, planning his next move, biding his time, kind of, the commitment to the long con in this guy is admirable yeah. and his discipline to keep it up because he would like walk 
for a certain time, he would mark things down and every once in a while. And he was getting encouragement from the people on the outside, too, because people would slip him notes and stuff like that. Right. So that definitely kept his hopes up. And, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's pretty remarkable how disciplined this guy is. Yeah, discipline. I think there is a hope that's not beaten out of him, that he just... And there's a focus. There's a focus, too. Um, yeah. I, I think there's a long-term goal that he has, of course, to escape. But also, that's kind of hard sometimes. And you have to you have to bring it back a little bit. You have to bring the focus back. So, mm. or, you know, zooming in, I guess. So just making it, you know, that day or, or even that hour and just taking it a little bit at a time. And it is easier when there are those notes. But when he loses that, I know that that was a step backwards for him as well. So it's crazy. I, I think there there's something special about him, too. <laughs> I think there is a reason <laughs> that he made it out in order to, to write this tale, which is ironic, given that he, he doesn't have much of a connection to religion. But yeah. I think his story is, is really important. So I feel like there's a reason why he made it out. Yeah, so talking about what his goal is, what is it overall that keeps him going? Is there something, do you feel like there's something beyond his desire for freedom? Is it just freedom? But he also has these really almost manic, but let's just say really lucid visions of taking his revenge out on the people in the justice system that did him dirty. Is that what keeps him going? Is is it very, you know, County Monte Cristo? That's why I said there are some themes there. What do you think about this? I think it's both. I think that he he is trying to there the vengeance makes sense or the idea of, of if it's vengeance of the people who wronged him in combination with righting that wrong because he feels like he has been dealt a grave and grave injustice. That he has been dealt this particular hand of being put wrongly in this prison. So he is going to enact his he is gonna get He's going to get out. He's going to prove them wrong, and he's going to right that wrong, and then he's going to get the revenge. Freedom, revenge, and and a uh, as slightly weird as we might think using the word justice here is, I think he's also out for some sort of justice as well. Mm. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I think it's yeah that sense of injustice that I didn't do this. I've been number one wrongly accused, and number two, I've been imprisoned for or told that I will be imprisoned for far far longer than the crime itself is worth and so I think he he yeah he wants to make it out at all costs and wants wants that freedom I think it's interesting because of the Crayusa wife that I'll call her um in the beginning Mm -hmm. you think that she might be a motivation I think that family is to a certain extent but as he goes on it becomes more and more I think singular and individual to himself and it's less about Mm -hmm. you know other people especially because people want in on the plan and he kind of looks them up and down and sees whether we know what can they add to it because if they're not going to be useful then he's not going even if they have money he's not going to bring them with him and i think revenge is a factor again in the beginning but i think he tempers that a bit towards the end as well because it does simmer and and stew i don't think it ever goes away but i think it it does because there are some intense moments of him, like, really thinking about how he's going to murder these people. But Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to, to see such a man. Because I, you know, there's a question I, I was thinking about as I was reading the synopsis. How many times, you know, you see seven or eight, and you think that's not... 
that's not a lot, seven or eight. But the fact that every time you're reading, you think that he's going to make it this time. He's going to make it this time. And the only reason you know that he's not going to make it is because of the thickness of the pages in your right hand mm -hmm. because we're reading yeah, left to right. Exactly. Which if you're, you know, if you're reading right to left, then the thickness of pages in your left hand, that's the only reason you know, oh, he's not going to make it out. But does it at all yeah. get, I don't know, I farcical or ridiculous not in like a funny way but just oh man the the amount of times that if anything could go wrong it did go wrong for him did, yeah, did it ever he, feel he, like that and just the fact that how often he tried and and this points to his character just that he never gives up because of how often things yeah. do go wrong or he's betrayed but does it ever just get like oh my gosh this is this is almost ludicrous now yeah, it is a little frustrating at times, right? Where it's just like, wow, we're we're still trying this and we're still going, like. But at the same time, as an audience person, you are just kind of like wondering, like, yeah, when this is gonna, when he's gonna stop with this. But there's that sheer determination. Yeah, going back to your point about him being individualistic in that regard, he is. I mean, he certainly has his friends and has his teams, and he works very well in that group. But I think there's a tacit understanding that once they get to a certain point, it's everybody for themselves, or if somebody does drown or it gets captured again or shot or whatever they're not gonna rat each other out anyway so you're with the group the cavall the cavall until you no longer need each other um, but even after you're if you if somebody dies uh, the rest of them can mourn but they all have to keep going they yeah. can't you know they, they can't let it stop them so yeah and each of those you know the people that he is escaping with i think either immediately mean something to him or grow to mean something because those moments uh, where his friend drowned because they hit the rocks or again, the quicksand, which is very, very sad and him yelling because they were so far distant that he's like telling his friend not to go there, but his friend couldn't hear him. And then it was just, then he was trying, I, I can't remember. He was like three kilometers out or something and he's trying to swim on these floating coconuts to get to his friend who was in the quicksand and by the time he made it he did so yeah they do he's not a heartless man i mean there he is thinking about himself and who can best benefit me in escaping but when they're together mm -hmm. i think they are certainly together so he, he does care about them to a certain extent yeah one of the times that he escapes he is amidst some indigenous peoples and mm -hmm. I found that that whole thing very interesting. Um, there are certainly many things you could talk about if you want to mention anything, please do. I was the most fascinated by my reaction to or trying to work through and reconcile his relationship with the two sisters, the two wives that he ends up having. And mm -hmm. in particular... The 12 slash 13 year old, I believe, is her is her age. And so in the beginning, so we're going to have like a Midsommar question here in the beginning, because that's what I was trying to <laughs> that's what I was trying to wrestle through, basically. So empathy is the name of the game, but I want to want to hear what you have to say. In the beginning, he was just with this one girl who is an older teen. I mean, I'm not saying it's super right. I cannot remember her actual age let's say mm -hmm. it was between 16 through 19 okay 
I feel, yeah. The But then she had a younger sister, and the younger sister was also wanting to be with him. And the times that she had approached him, he said, I'm sure I could, you might be able to find it, I don't know, as I'm speaking. But the times that he had, she had approached him, he was very put off, because I think it made him feel uncomfortable as well. And so you kind of, you know, wipe the sweat from your brow that nothing weird is going to happen, or things that will make you feel uncomfortable. And then, in the end, he does strike up a relationship with her, a large reason at, at from what I recall as well as feel is that he felt pretty badly about how badly she felt because she it would cry often and just want to be. So it was, I, I don't want to fully defend this. So this is the reconciliation here, but I feel like there was a lot of tenderness in bringing her into the fold. Um, and then it seems like they had a very loving little uh, polyamorous slash polygamous relationship. Okay, so she is 12 or 13. This is very problematic with with an any time lens. But I'm wondering if, because this is the Midsommar question, because of the context of the culture, do we give... Henri a little bit more leeway and the fact that he was putting her off and then it, it turned into something more and he didn't it didn't seem like he was taking advantage of her do we give him a little more leeway or show that empathy again empathy if we think about the, the reader's example of empathy where we can understand what's going on but we can also say maybe that wasn't maybe that wasn't the best can we do that with this situation or do you think wholeheartedly we should be like no that was wrong 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 and there's no there's no explanation or defending of it i'm in the former camp i think that i don't know it made sense to me you know trying to live among these people which was one of his goals so he could bide his time or whatever he was trying to do you know so getting in with one of the girls who's older and the other girl being jealous it's it's not it's very uncomfortable yeah you know um especially when he's with the younger one um you know when he gets both of them pregnant and then just leaves um, i don't know if he ever returned what his you know what his, the people i don't know what people thought about this section either like you know you're curious as to like what happened to these uh these particular people yet i kind of give it uh not a pass but a little bit of understanding of being um, in a place and being kind of swept up in the place. I mean, he's there for several months, right? Yeah. It's seductive in a sense, right? It's it's paradise, and he he ingratiates himself with the tribal leader, like tattooing the guy, and uh, he does not see. In my mind, he's not looking down upon these people. No, and I think that's one of the things that helps, like. He seems to have a real appreciation for who these people are and what they do. And he doesn't think of them as lesser or less intelligent or primitive or anything like that in the in a pejorative sort of way. So, yeah. I'm glad you think so. Yeah, it, it was it's interesting reading these type of things where obviously we have a visceral reaction to mm -hmm. what is going on. But then I just feel like. Visceral reactions are good because I think your gut tells you something. But then you just have to look, I think, more closely to what's happening, mm -hmm. which is, you know, what I what I certainly do. And I just think culturally, if that's, you know, if that's what 
is probably normalized that girls are probably getting married off at 12, 13. Poor Mary, mother of God. You know, she was yeah. probably 12 or 13, unfortunately, when she uh, married Joseph. So these things, these things do happen. So, yeah, I think that empathy is the name of the game here. I am have you know again I'm I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt that you know this is all true but I am hopeful that it is true that you know he he was really trying to push her off he he felt uncomfortable and then sort of the reason for for bringing her into the fold and everything was mm -hmm. um, not lascivious I did find it but I was trying to see yeah um, I was looking for it too but I couldn't figure it, it was early I always found it kind of interesting how like when they each had a door they had to enter by into the hut. Yes. And like when he when he got involved and was the lover slash husband of the younger one, they had to build a new door. That's correct. Yep. From the hut, so that she had a door that she could enter. I found that that I found just from sort of a purely anthropological perspective that I found that interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Oh yeah. It says Lolly, who is the older sister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lolly held her breasts in her hands and then pointed to Zoraima's little bosom to show that that was the reason I didn't want her. I shrugged and everybody laughed. I could see Zoraima was very miserable. So she and she always they she followed him around. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. I liked this. I really liked when he was with he said I think I believe it's that section is called and I quote the Indians. Um, yes. But I, I liked when he was with the indigenous people because I thought, you know, it, he's not exactly where he wants to be he, because mm -hmm. in his imaginings of escaping, this isn't it. But w what closer, <laughs> what place is closer to paradise than, than where he was? Where, yeah, he had the respect of the yeah. chief. He could get things from that trader if he needed it. They had, you know, the pearls, and which were given to him freely, and he yeah. had a great relationship. And uh, it made me sad that he wanted to leave. Maybe it was like a romantic part of me, but also just like I knew that, again, the thickness in my right hand, I knew that it just was not going to be great once he left it. He doesn't really speak of, well, I that's a lie. He does have dreams. I believe in solitary confinement, he does think about... Uh, his wives and their he, they would have had their children by that point but i don't think yeah. that he goes back even though he promises him them that he will return i would have loved that but i guess it's interesting to think that now there could be like however many generations of papillon running around if that yeah. indigenous tribe is still around or you know walking mm -hmm. through the streets but yeah that was probably the one of the sadder times of i wish you would have stayed right there because you were, but I, I think he was just not content. There is a lack of contentment, I think, with him too. If we were to add another characteristic to what keeps him going, he's just not content with the situation. So, anything else you want to talk about with the um, the indigenous people? I thought that it was uh, fairly respectful toward those people. I would agree because he was it was not he wasn't gawking at them he was actually kind of praising their ingenuity in some cases uh their ability to just live in the way that they do i liked i liked that whole section i liked how he was so easily able to acclimate among them or just again appealing to the authority helping the chief like get this tattooing the guy with that huge um you know lion or whatever it is 
um, you know, appealing to the whole male dominated aspects of the society, but still getting the getting whatever a, a rich title was coming to him or something. Yeah. So. So speaking of quote unquote the Indians, I want to speak about some of the the terms and things that he that Papillon uses in his work. Sure as well as the peoples. So I I think we both had similar questions. So I think I'll group them together. That is okay. okay. I He does a couple times. I say several times, so either way. But by today's standards, obviously, or always, are disrespectful and offensive. Um, and I think the impact remains the same, but I wondered if you thought his intention unkind in how he speaks about uh, or calls some people. And then you said, so we'll, we'll combine these, how is the portrayal of non-white characters? Do you feel like it's appropriate for the time and yet insensitive today or just flat out racist? So very similar to our Stephen King thought about um, how he is mm -hmm. <laughs> using or appropriating culture. This was tough because for me, I read this knowing that, that it was of its time. Right. So his use of words uh, um, to describe others, I think I was able to love knowing that it was just the accepted terminology or the accepted colloquialisms or whatever it was at the time and such. I don't think he was being um, racist. To be honest with you, I don't think that was his intent. Yeah. Because, you know, again, you got to take a 50-year-old book into account and what was, what was that. I found the glossary interesting, um, helpful, because <laughs> he just uses the words. So words like mech and uh, kaval and, and some of the other, bang, um, some of the other ones that just keep reappearing and reappearing and reappearing. I, mean, I, I didn't do a word count, obviously, but I would imagine the word kaval or kavale or kaval shows up um, at least a uh, hundred times in this book. Because he's always talking about escape, things like that. Yeah. But yeah, the, as far as the the, the 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 indigenous people, like I said, I think it was respectful. I think when he's using terms like black and he's using other terms to describe um, people from other cultures, he is doing a great job of trying to be as respectful as he possibly can. Yeah, yeah, I think there is a difference between impact and intention. I think his intention mm -hmm. is positive as well as being clinical and scientific so i was just flipping through as you were speaking and he uses the arab a lot which depending yes. on the person i think you could read an inflection of tone because the turnkey i believe was an arab and he was a pretty bad guy and uh, but there were others you know that that helped him out and then he also just notes people by where they're from so the colombian but he's also asked as being multiple times are you the frenchman so it's almost a way to identify people and you you also have to think that in many situations he was most likely the minority because you know in the different um some of the prisons because i think there were obviously it was it was french occupied or french province where they were but you know, other point when Venezuela or any of those, he probably he was sticking out, and I think you kind of take that into consideration when you're using mm -hmm. certain terms. That wait a minute, I'm the outlier here. But yeah, he he doesn't seem to be someone who would say something with vitriol attached to it, in my opinion, anyways. And the yeah, I, I think it is. You know, part of it is is a product of its time and how 
French people or just white people would have been describing some of these characters, but it's never a caricature or mm -hmm. disrespectful because I think for, for Papillon, you know, I guess I'll be speaking for him here today, but they're all in the same boat to a certain extent because I, I think yeah. they're, their nationality and race doesn't matter. The fact that they're all prisoners matters. And so, and again, they're all trying to beat, beat it somehow. So I think that trumps whatever else, it, uh, if if there were any sort of um, prejudices that were going. And I th I feel like we see other people with actual prejudices, but I didn't really yeah. see see that from Papillon. And again, I think that he does show when he is not a great person. So that's why I I, be I believe people more. I think when they show that they have flaws than if they were perfect, I'd be like, okay, there's something going on here. Oh, I just wonder. The prison wallet, a.k.a. the <laughs> – what was it called here? I don't know why I couldn't remember. Uh, the plan? Yes, or the charger. I yeah. – with as many times as I read it, because even the first time I was like, okay, I understand what's happening. But as it kept happening, I thought, am I really understanding what's going on? But we are. It's shoved up the yeah. rectum. But I yes. just don't know – how your body does not reject it or how you don't get into some some big trouble and with i don't know if this happened in the book but in the 73 version one of the men was talking about his charger got lodged up and he had to go to the doctor and the doctor had to cut it out but then the doctor stole money of course and mm -hmm. it seems likely that that would be an episode in the book but yeah how how do you have any thoughts on this did this boggle your mind as much as it did me because i'm just thinking you've got to take it out every time you go to the bathroom right yeah, that that's like it's the logistics of keeping this thing are weird because it doesn't seem like they always have it jammed up there. Yeah, it, it seems like they when they're in their prison cells and things, they're not there. They're in the various hiding places among the prisons. So the using it the way they do is only in certain circumstances. Like I think when they're being searched is one of them. The, the cells are being searched and another one is during the escape. So there are many times where he has his plan. And the man keeps making money. I mean, <laughs> so he has his plan, and then um, he keeps it in his cell, and then every once in a while he has to put it in his, uh, in his, you know, butt. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I think that's meant to be a short-term thing, but it does seem like a very long time to have it up there. Man. So it was a little bit mind-boggling. Yeah. Because it keeps coming up too. It does keep coming up, the and the these aren't. Book. Even though it's called a suppository, these are thick little items. Yeah. So just the fact that man alive. Yeah, I don't know. Whoo, crazy. Yeah, because it's a cylinder and has like yep. usually for some of them it has like several hundred, even thousands of dollars worth yep. of cash. Yep. You know, so that's that's not small. Yeah. So yeah, it got lodged in there. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> man. Yeah, it's the most painful episode we've ever recorded. It probably is. Yeah. Well, I just want like, how far does it go? Yeah. Do you, wouldn't you feel that when you're sitting and moving around? I I just have many many questions. I don't think this is something that you're gonna want to Google to get a YouTube video demonstration no, of, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I watched. Yeah, a don't nurse click the don't click the image button with a with a patient that was that was as close as I think I'll get to this. Yeah. 
But um, but that was painful for her <laughs> to have someone's fingers up her rectum. So I'm just like, yes. these people are doing it maybe multiple times a day. This really painful thing. So well, you gotta you gotta have your money somehow, I guess. So. Yeah. Okay. Now you have a question about quick quick burning bodies mm-hmm. and whether it's gruesome or necessary and i will again show my flaws there so now hopefully people will believe me could you remind me about that episode since you have more recently read it so so he's on so he and his friend go to the island the island is surrounded by sand um quicksand yes his friend he can see that the island is surrounded by quicksand from like from his approach and so he stays as best he can on the raft until it's absolutely necessary. And he avoids getting sucked into the quicksand and getting on the shore. Unfortunately, his friend abandons his his launch, you know, too quickly. Ends up in the quicksand, fights right, it, right, and yep. ends up drowning. But then he finds Quick Quick's bro- Quick Quick, who is the brother of another prisoner that he knew in in the, the banyan. The guy has the pig, you know. Goat and a pig. Um, no, he has he has waddles. Goat and a pig. A couple of livestock living their lives stuck together in harmony. A pig and a goat showing the world that a pig and a goat can be family. Love so strong, love so big, such a beautiful goat and a pig found in matrimony now and forever. Shopping for groceries and buying a condo and filing their taxes together. Goat and a pig. And um, although I think it's like a huge black pig or something, it's, it's just the way he describes it. I'm just picturing this big black fat pig. He wheels and deals with people in and around the area, etc. He has a bonfire constantly going. And at one point, I think it storms or something and the bonfire goes out and, and, and he notices for the first time that there are bodies buried under it. And they, they had done something severely wrong. And that was his way of revenge, like killing them and get rid of the bodies. But it was, it was very strange. Um, I think it showed maybe to build suspense for us as the readers that he's not out of the woods just yet yeah. in that regard. Cause he wondered, like he did outwardly wonder like whether or not quick, quick had something like that in store for him. But yeah, so I was just like, wow, that's just the smell of the burning bodies. And then I've got to go write one as well. That sounds so I got to write, you know, I got to go be there um, with the with him and, and deal with him. It's just I can't imagine that it's uh, pleasant. Yeah, no, there were some gruesome episodes, I, I think. Thank you for reminding me about um, all of that. The this one as well as the well, cannibals. if you're going to remind me about, um, you know, <laughs> Money, sh- money, and gold cylinders shoved my rear end. I'm going to remind you. Well, about thank you. I, We're even. Mutual pleasure. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the cannibals. That was also pretty gruesome. Yeah, that they, was pretty bad too. Trade and ate their their peoples. Yeah. Yes. Was it gruesome or necessary? Uh, you mean what? Quick Week's action? Yeah. Do we really need to see that? Oh, I mean, okay. but but I mean by that point. We'd yeah. Some, I mean, so well, Papillon. Well, thing, right? yeah. Henri has been telling us everything. So I mean, why stop there? Was it necessary for Quick Week yeah. do it? I th- I think it depends on what the people actually did to him. Yeah. But yeah, the burning that sort of assumes that it was probably pretty bad if he decided to go that to that extreme. Yeah. And but yeah, it does give you a heightened 
heightened sense of of uh, foreboding and suspense of what is this, and then once we get there, uh oh, is Papillon in danger again, which he constantly seems to be. But luckily, I think that the connection between I think he was brothers, maybe have we rel- related? I think you're you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, that means means something in this and, and we find out that it does and and pappy is able to rely on quick quick uh for a little while until they yeah. part company so yes so <laughs> gruesome yes and <laughs> i mean necessary i don't know but you know if you're showing everything else you might as well just keep on going so yeah what i don't yeah, know why? necessarily why? what the what the word is that like inevitable mm-hmm. maybe Okay, there are references to Dreyfus, the Dreyfus Affair, which mm-hmm. uncovered the anti-Semitism within the French army, and it is the subject of Emile Zola's famous open, the Emile Zola, yes. famous open letter titled J'accuse. Obviously, these would have been known to French readers and maybe others, but I'd, as in Tom, imagine they'd be lost on a modern audience. Is there significance to the illusion? The, so I was trying to I was trying to figure that out. Like I think he because he, he talks about sitting on Dreyfus's bench, and the Dreyfus affair was I think the late 1800s. So like I think it's just a maybe the significance is to show that like you know the profile of which where he is because I think it's on Devil's Island, um, and Dreyfus is probably the most famous inmate on that island and everything. And Dreyfus's or, or Dreyfus's conviction was is also really really controversial from what I from what I understand or what I remember having read it. Yeah, so uh, he was convicted of treason, but he was falsely convicted and sent into life imprisonment um, for communicating military secrets to the German embassy. Evidence came through light, which um, showed that actually somebody else had had done this. The court acquitted acquitted the guy that had actually done it. So, like, he was accused of treason, and the person who actually committed the treason ended up getting acquitted of the treason because of the, because of the anti-Semitism within the army and the courts, and they didn't want to be proven wrong. So he's – I want to say he's bringing it up because people know – if they know the island there, they might know Dreyfus, and the French people can kind of make the connection back to that because it's not – in 1969, 1970, when this was written or published, it's – you know, 1906 was when the Dreyfus Affair ended. So, you know, it's it's within a couple of generations. I also think maybe he's comparing himself to Dreyfus, feeling that he has been wrongly convicted and he's been trying to get out, which Dreyfus probably never did. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And because it's speaking on anti-Semitism, is there at all, do you think, a connection with the encroachment of World War II? I think so to a certain extent. I mean, because there was something else I mentioned. There was like there were points where the the Guienne and the French Guienne and the authorities like side with uh, Nazi with Vichy France, um, and they're like the prisoners are like, I don't want to fight for the French government. I sure as no hell don't want to fight for the Germans. Yeah. So they're they're able to keep themselves fairly isolated from the goings on of the rest of the world. It only really starts to become uh, an issue where they've actually escaped it at one point when they end up um, – they end up in a British territory at one point, right? Like when they're – when they have finally escaped uh, Georgetown, when they're in Georgetown. Like, you know, that's how they end up getting into prison in Venezuela. Like, and to the point where, like, he, he wants out of Georgetown because um, 
I think he gets in trouble for it because it's just it's it's oppressive to him. He can't he can't work and live like this, uh, especially since they won't give him any sort of work clearance or visa or whatever. So, <laughs> but the, it's interesting to see how he the few times the world does because by and large they're isolated from the rest of the world. Like you don't realize it's the 1940s until there's a reference to that. And you're like, wow, he's been here for a really really long time. Yeah. Yeah, that I think I feel like that was probably something that went over my head. Mm-hmm. I did when I was reading about De Gaulle and all that. I was like trying to mm-hmm. also piece that together. So there were certain things historically yeah. that I think you do need to do some research on to get all that together. It, it doesn't rely on such references though to tell the story. So I think the story still works if you don't get them. Yeah. Yes, I yeah I agree. As I was flipping through trying to find that, which I did. I forgot about the Arab and the ant. Remember when those two convicts killed the turnkey that was blackmailing them with man-eating mm-hmm. ants? Yes. Oh. So I forgot. There's so again. I think it just goes to show you that yeah, he's he's gonna tell you anything and everything. And some of these just are like, oh my gosh, did that really just happen? <laughs> so there's some crazy stuff there. Did you want to speak any more about World War Two? No, I think I, I think I covered it. Okay. I just found it fascinating. Yeah, I just wanted to, to see. You know, I think I said what we, we were both thinking there. It remind. I can't remember what work we read. I believe you were leading it at the time, but there was something where this outside historical thing was trying to poke through, but couldn't make its way in, and so it feels like that here where this whole story seems very timeless. Mm-hmm. You think it's like way, way, way in the past, but really it's honestly not, you know, not that far in the past. Uh, you think it's that way because of the poor yeah. conditions. But then you have this this thing that's kind of simmering, like World War II's on the horizon. is kind of trying to poke through, but it means nothing to these people. I mean, it means something to the guards and, like, some of the prisoners, but they're in prison. So it's not like they're going to have any impact on the war whatsoever. And then, yeah, Pappy is saying, you know, why, the French government did this to me. Why should I... Why should I give a damn? So uh, it's interesting how it tries to poke through, like his his historical, this historical big deal. World War II is trying to poke through the story, but doesn't necessarily make its way in because Papillon is very closed off to it. A separate piece. <gasps> You're right, Tom. Good. Oh, that was mine. <laughs> yeah, it was yours, but it was that a was separate mine. piece, right? Because they, because it's like right during, right before the war, yes, or right yeah, during the but war. But it's always there, yeah. Yeah. Good, good job, Tom. You get a gold star today. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> I did want to talk about religion. I mean, I think it's only right given that Liberty University has also decided <laughs> to show up on this particular podcast and Falwell, and it's clear that. Papillon has a difficult relationship with religion. I don't know if he's atheist or his, he's mesotheist, which means, you know, he hates God. Not I'm not sure about this. But he has such a strong love for his father, and his father had such a connection to um, religion that he hasn't necessarily given it up entirely. So it keeps kind of popping in and everything. Yeah. Uh, where are there moments where religion maybe that struggle 
um, pops through or even maybe positive moments for him and where are there moments where he might feel betrayed by it by God or religion as an institution there's a point in the story of his first successful prison break where he ends up at a convent oh yes this is what I was thinking about too and I think he's somebody in that convent sells him out the mother superior in fact yeah, the mother superior. So I think that's a betrayal because he was. It's also both because other nuns, I think, who is very fond of him and is going to be protective of him. There's a couple of them, but the mother superior ultimately sells him out. Uh, so I think that's a betrayal of uh, a betrayal in that sense. I don't have much for a. I really wasn't. Uh, I really wasn't looking, looking for that. Yeah. Uh, for that, so beyond that incident with the nuns, I really can't tell you, so I'm going to push that back Yeah, you. and unfortunately, I can't find some of these sections where he does go on a little bit about his relationship with religion. Yeah, I do. I wonder, well, I'll, I'll punt it back to you and ask, do you think that he <laughs> conflates the two, the fact that the Mother Superior sold him out means like oh i was right all along about religion or does he just see it as this one person did this to me and she just happens to be a religious official to a certain extent i think i don't think he thinks all religion is like that but i do i do think that he becomes less and less trustworthy of people of the cloth based on these experiences i think he might realize that not every religious person is like that mother superior yeah. but be i think there's a general untrust on distrust yeah. of people who are religious religion and the the sister helped him because they were mm -hmm. they were delivering supplies and then basically he asked to be smuggled in so she yeah. helped him and i think that she was very mournful at this betrayal as well mm -hmm. i did find a section oh you know what mm. i think i may have lied to you I may have liked to be oh, I may I've misremembered. Well, because he just said this is on page one forty one, but I don't know if it's the same as you. My father brought me up without any religion. He has a heart of gold. Mm. When Maman died, he somehow managed to take her place with all the things a mother would do or say, and all a mother's affection. It seems to me that if I let myself be christened, ah, oh, so it's the reversal basically. Just, uh, if I let myself be christened, I should somehow be betraying him. So there's the struggle mm. there. Sorry, I just um, kind of flipped it around. Just let gotcha. me be completely free for a while with a proper set of papers and an ordinary way of living, earning my living. So that when I write to him, I can ask whether I can leave his philosophy, whether I can be christened without grieving him. I understand, my son, and I am sure God is with you. I give you my blessing and I beg that. I don't know why Liberty University would be so upset with that. This was very interesting. I don't know. Who knows? They're weird. And the priest here in this section actually seems like a, a like a decent, like a good priest. The way that he mm -hmm. that he speaks to him and talks about these, he says, "Reflect, my son. If you had not been forced to undergo this cavalry, you would never have been able to raise yourself to such heights or to bring yourself so close to the divine truth." The people, the system, the workings of this horrible machine that has ground you down and the fundamentally evil beings who in their different ways have tormented and harmed you have in fact done you the greatest service they possibly could. They have brought a new person into being inside of you better than the first. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, interesting. So I apologize to the audience for, for flipping that around. But even so, 
uh, which I, I think the struggle still, my main point of it is still true, <laughs> that he struggles with religion about what to do and what not to do, and he does have positive interactions. Like, I think that whole time with the priest, because he ends up telling his whole life story, and then, yeah, on the flip side, you have his relationship with, with the Mother Superior and, and the convent and everything. And, and you know, there are some, some people along the way who might spout religion um, but are doing bad things to to him so mm-hmm. oh is it the is the warden in shawshank is he a religious man i don't remember okay. to be completely honest with you it's been a very long it's been about a good 20 25 years since i actually read the story and it's been a good oh five six years since i watched the movie so last so gotcha. i don't remember off the top of my head i don't think it's uh i don't know if it's particularly there's other movies though that um, there was a Brad Pitt movie from the late '90s, Sleepers. That detail, I want to say there might have been. It was like a boys' prison thing, um, and and such. So there's there's this whole again that going back to that subgenre question. Um, sometimes the uh, sometimes the the people of of religion show up at like I think of Camus' The Stranger. Oh. Yeah. And at the end, you know, he's so because it's an absurdist thing. And to him, absurdism, of course, is like not only is there no point to life, but it's 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 foolish to find try to find one. And at the end, uh, Mersault is in prison. He is awaiting execution. And a priest has come in to sort of speak with him. Um, and he just basically declares like his belief in nothing. So the priest becomes sort of the foil of which to bounce that idea off of, you know, so I was just thinking of things like that. Are there any other things you want to go over? No, I think, I think we've covered quite a bit. Okay. Um, it, it is a pretty rich book. It, there is. Yeah. Yes. You know, there's a lot. Um, I, I do appreciate his ingenious, uh, or ingenuity with the coconuts. Um, and again, his, his, I admire his ability to plan this smartly because other people were trying to escape the island or whatever, or some of the prisons, and they were doing it really, really haphazardly because they were just so desperate to get out, and he understood that that wasn't going to serve anybody. But he also, when he got to Devil's Island, it's interesting how he was able to get somebody to work with him and even get the other people on his side so they would just let him kind of do that because a lot of them knew the place was inescapable so they just kind of made their made their choice and stay and a lot of them don't want to try to escape because they essentially have like a hustle going that they're making money right. or whatever yep. so so but some of them are like you know but they, but they all get to know him to the extent that he'll they're like all right you're going to try it i'm not going to say anything so that I that I found a little bit interesting yeah. as well. I did consider coming up with a question about the leper colony, but I couldn't really think of what I would ask. But that was an interesting uh, episode as well. Two groups of people who were forced out of society and are ostracized from society, helping one another. Yeah. Um, I think that's what that's the what I got out of it. Yeah. He goes to leper colony. A leper colony is famously like you know we have isolated these people from society because of leprosy. Yeah. And uh, and I have been thrown out of society for a crime and they are they are going to help me because they feel some sort of kinship with me. Man, and that that terrible, terrible. Yeah. Okay. well, thank you, Tom. You're welcome. What would you say that this is required reading? 
I would recommend it if anybody is interested in it. Yeah. I would recommend it. I would say that it's required reading for um, a prison genre that Tom and I have created tonight. <laughs> and I've before I turn it over to Tom, of course, I do want to say that it's called Three Cups of Tea, not Two Cups of Tea. So I do apologize. Oh, okay. But I didn't want to. When I discovered that, I didn't want to just interrupt our flow of Papillon in order to do that. But no, like I said, probably top ten books that I've I've read in my life. And yeah, I, I heartily recommend it. The author of Million Little Pieces, by the way, is James Fry. Okay. I looked that up while we were... Yeah, I was I was reading about that. And Oprah, Oprah, Oprah basically Both. said, like, you bamboozled me and you bamboozled the audience. Yeah. And I'm like, man, Oprah, you've been bamboozled a couple times. You need to trust I, these people more. I remember that episode because my wife had heard about it and was like, I think we DVR'd it to watch it later because I was driving home and she like called me about, it. I'm like, Oh, I got to listen to this and watch this and everything. Because we had watched some show that she had done about, she had done the show about like with him and interviewing him and because it was a book club selection Yeah. and it got like, you know, and then all these things. So like it was, it was a book club collection selection. And I believe I want to say it was the smoking gun, that website that uncovered all of the lies within the book. And then she had him on the show and was like reamed him for everything. And it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was a train wreck, yeah. <laughs> but um, sort of a schadenfreude, a train wreck. Cause this guy got what was coming to him. Yeah. I, I guess it, it makes me worry about what we consume and what we take it, take for granted or mm-hmm. face value maybe in that no one because I was reading on Wikipedia as you were talking about that work that somebody was looking just looking for his mugshot and couldn't find anything and that's kind of how yeah, it all started. That's how it was. Yeah. And I'm thinking, did the publishers slash his agent not think that maybe they should do this kind of background check? Do we not do that? I so I remember the smoking gun because the smoking gun used to have a mugshots page of famous people, right? So they were looking to add the mugshot to their famous mugshots page. And that's, that's what started us down this whole path of him, you know, finally the whole story unraveling, you know, I don't think it, I, it depends on who the, who the publisher is employing for these things. But I think on some level, it's just like, they're not, they weren't doing it because it was such a hot sort of yeah. time for those sorts of memoirs. You know, this was an addiction memoir. Yeah. And those were selling like crazy and they have this amazing story. So either it got fact checked to the, the minimal degree and it seemed checked out or somebody was ignored in terms of the fact checking. I'd have to go back and actually read about the story and see if I could find like okay. what, well, what if anything the publisher actually yeah. tried to do. I don't know if that means I should give up hope about people reading books and then doing re- their, their own education and trying to be advocates and uh, activists. Now I'm I'm worried. I don't know. It's because it's interesting how how books can can affect you and you can become you know uh, sometimes you are susceptible to, to things that aren't true, but at the same time there are books like this that that do start to change your mind about like you know what is it is there something here that needs to be changed? Like you mentioned the new Jim Crow and then there's, you know, there's, there's others. 
in, in our field in education that people have read about the same sort of inequities and things like that. So I think there's some power behind a lot of this too. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe that can be a special controversial yeah. lying books, books that have betrayed us Ooh, because that would be they turned out to be lies Fake ass and books. how we, yeah, I don't know how we reconcile what's been the, the storytelling versus the reality. Yeah. That could be an interesting. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you take it over. Okay, we do have two small pieces of feedback, um, and I apologize. They're both from Robert Ward, our Scholastic Book Buddy, and I apologize because Facebook changed the way it runs the pages, like, and how you can access things. So messages kind of, like, I couldn't – I was looking through it today. I was like, is there – and I finally figured out how to access the messages and and stuff like that. So these are actually from several months ago. Uh, they were just kind of buried somewhere in the Facebook uh, so my apologies. So he had a comment of regarding extremely loud and incredibly close. Uh, and he, it was a link to a piece about how GameStop took down an NFT based on the falling man photo. And he said, and Tom thought he had an issue with the falling man and incredibly loud. I don't just like, how do you take the falling man photo, which isn't even your photo and turn it into an NFT? That's so disgusting. You, and I'm old. I don't understand NFTs anyway. Well, yeah, I was about to ask, what is that exactly? I don't remember. It's some some it's some scam. Okay. Let's just say it's basically some scam that a bunch of people are trying to run um, on the on the order of like a crypto type of thing. I don't. That's how I understand it. it it's one of those things where like you know, uh, somebody wants me to throw my money at them. Oh, do don't do it. The the Arab <laughs> prince is trying to get you to help him. Yeah. And he'll give you back tenfold. Yes, I. Sir feel like is probably someone who wasn't alive during 9-11 probably you know or just born after so yeah it's they don't realize maybe that it's disrespectful or don't just don't have the reverence i think for it as they should yeah and then he also messaged us though he says this has more to do with dear reader he says for stella she mentioned the fastbender adaptation and brought up in a message from ciscoid on the latest episode of dear reader and he found a hilarious podcast about that film version um, from a website called heavingbosoms.com. So, well, Heaving Bosoms link. and Quivering Members. That's what I like to read about. I will have to check that out. I wonder. Yeah. I, ca- I can hardly think of how you can make a hilarious podcast about <laughs> the film version, <laughs> that one in particular. But, yeah, I'll, I'll see. I'll be interested to see what that is. All right. Yeah, that'll do it. So, um, yeah, it's been a while since we had any other feedback with that. So if you're interested in any of these episodes or anything like that, please send us something. Yes, I am missing Professor Allen. I wonder where he is. I know. I know. <laughs> off doing things with off doing things with Dr. Doom, I'm assuming. No, probably. And if he has to get an interlibrary loan and it's more than 25 cents, you know he's not going to do it. This is true. Yeah. This is very true. Well, Tom, I'm excited to mm. find out what we're going to do for Christmas. Yeah, so um, we're, we are uh, we going to head into the holidays with the next episode because uh, it will drop in December a couple of weeks before Christmas and maybe during Hanukkah. When is Hanukkah this year? 
Yeah, so right before Hanukkah, because Hanukkah starts on December 28th. Sorry, Hanukkah just starts on Sunday, December 18th, and ends on Monday, December 26th. So right in time for those two peculiar holidays, we are going to be reading a queer holiday romance <gasps> novel. It is, and it's a brand new book. It, it, we are recording this on October 11th, which is actually the day it came out. It's called the season. It's called Season of Love, and the author is named Helena Greer. Uh, so if you want to check that out, it is available on Amazon, you know, all the, all the usual places. And I'll try to remember to put a, a, a link, uh, to where you can buy it in the show notes for this episode in case you're interested in checking it out. So, yeah, so I thought, you know, a little bit, it, it sounds, it's romance. It's probably way more lighthearted than a prison break book, certainly less dense and, and lengthy. And since it's going to be the holidays, I felt, why not, right? Let's stay with the theme. So Season of Love by Helena Greer. That is our next episode in about a month. And until then, like I said, leave us comments, emails, all that other good stuff. And as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. And <laughs> trying to think how I can go. She's trying so go hard. Go out on this here. Should I talk about the prison wallet? Should I talk about... I was going to say, she's like... <laughs> and remember, folks, choose your friends wisely. And by wisely, I mean whomever you trust to hold a charger with your money in the rectum. Good night. Good night! <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I wanted yeah, to be explicitly to... clear where they were holding the charger. In the butt bum. In the bum. Oh, that's what we're going out on, isn't it? Of course. Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcast. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.